You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. How fluent are you in the language of anatomy? If you're like most yoga teachers, you probably feel like you're a little bit deficient, and you may even feel guilty for not devoting more time to it. When I first graduated from teacher training, anatomy felt like a huge project, and I was not very motivated to dive in because it didn't feel super relevant to my motivations for practicing and teaching yoga. Then the question started. No matter how much or how little anatomy training you have, your students are going to treat you like an expert. They're going to ask you questions about their bodies in general and what they should be doing in specific poses. I have to say, it takes a huge amount of discipline to tell them, I don't know, over and over and over when they're looking to you for help. This was my initial motivation to start learning about anatomy. And I did find to my surprise and my delight that anatomy can be extremely useful and relevant, even to inform the deeper teachings of yoga. Learning anatomy inspires humility and awe. Our bodies are these incredibly, miraculously complex organisms, and yet delightfully resilient. Studying anatomy can help reduce fear about keeping your students safe because you understand the range of normal that can be embraced versus what might require professional assistance. It also will help you customize your personal practice to meet your unique needs and assist your students to do the same. An understanding of anatomy also helps yoga teachers go beyond rote memorization and a limited repertoire of cues that you learned from other teachers. Because when you understand the why behind anatomical cues, you will naturally start to develop your own cues based on intention for the moment and the movement. Today's podcast guest is a repeat offender. My dear friend Libby Hinesley is a physical therapist and yoga therapist who specializes in hypermobility, chronic pain, and teaching anatomy to yoga teachers. She's also been a friend since teacher training and my collaborator on the Anatomy Bites membership platform. In this episode, we talk about Anatomy Bites a few times, and if you are listening to this shortly after this particular episode is released, please know we're opening doors to the membership soon, and you can go to anatomybites.com to get on the wait list. If you're listening later, you can reach out to support at anatomybites.com if you're curious about the next time we're going to open the doors to the membership. And of course, you are also welcome to go to anatomybites.com to get on the wait list no matter when you are listening. In today's conversation, Libby and I cover a range of topics from the best way to learn anatomy to some speculation on the reasons why certain cues originated to some different perspectives on symmetry in sequencing. Let's jump right into the conversation and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the podcast, Libby. Thanks for having me back. Always fun to be here. Yeah, and so much fun to chat with you and get nerdy about all things yoga and all things anatomy, which you and I have done so many times over the past, how many years? Mm, a lot of years, looking at about uh, 16 years, probably. I think so, 16, 17 years, somewhere around there. 
So I've gathered a whole bunch of questions from the Anatomy Bites Q&A form. Okay. So I've pulled out some questions that I thought would be more helpful for any yoga teacher listening who is curious about anatomy, biomechanics, and how they apply to specific poses. Mm-hmm. Cool. So the first question, somebody was asking about tips or tricks on how to remember all the anatomy terms. So this is for anybody who is interested in learning more about anatomy, but finds it to be overwhelming. Yeah. So that's a really good question and probably a really common one. And part of what gets so overwhelming for people when they try to learn anatomy, because when we learn anatomy, we literally are learning a new language. So, you know, as part of the Anatomy Bites membership, we, Mado and I created this Anatomy Essentials little mini course that gets included. And part of that impetus was to help lay the foundation of anatomy language. But, you know, when you're learning specific muscles and where they're attached and what they do, the key, I think, at least for me, and I know a lot of people learn by embodying information, is to move your body and feel the way that the muscle works. And that's what we do in Anatomy Bites. We do lectures and then we do practices to really get that material into your felt experience. And I think that's really helpful, but it takes a lot of repetition, like a lot of repetition, like learning any new language does. And some of the material in anatomy, you just have to memorize. There's not like a special trick. There's not a special tool. You just have to remember it. And the way we remember things is through frequency of repetition. So frequency, 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 much better than volume at building memory. So that's what I would recommend, you know, as much as possible to do the movements, to feel the muscles in your own body and learn it as a felt experience. But the kind of brainy part is uh, is a brainy part. Yeah. And that's also why we created Anatomy Bites to be a long-term membership with a little bit of content every month instead of like a big course that you're supposed to consume all at once. The idea is to make a commitment to learning this. And with that, I think it's helpful to be a little bit gentle on yourself, to not expect that you're going to learn a brand new language in a matter of weeks or even months. If you, let's say you moved to a new country, it would still take you months of immersion every single day to be even proficient in the language. But with anatomy, there's no way that this, that you're immersing yourself in the same way that you would if you moved to another country, right? Where they speak a different language. So I, I love that description, Libby, of comparing it to a language because that gives you a sense of the scope. And also I hope that it helps anyone listening who is worried about the speed that they're learning anatomy to just relax a little bit. Yeah, that's the key. And also that it's a layering process. I would also say, you know, so in Anatomy Bites, we have basically one topic per month, but it's not as though after you do, you know, this rotator cuff topic for one month, you're supposed to be an expert on the rotator cuff. That's just not how it's going to work. It's like your first layer of it. And then over time, we would kind of circle back and pick up more information that helps the previous information make even more sense. And it just becomes a layering process. And we have to be patient for that to happen. And I definitely notice, myself included, that we want things to 
happen overnight. You know, we want to get expert at something the first time we hear it. And that's just not how it works. So yeah, gentleness is good. Awesome. All right. I'm going to move on to the next question. How do we generalize our instruction? So here's what the person said. Given that you might be teaching a class where students are demonstrating a range of postural habits like sway back, flat back, overpronounced kyphotic or lordotic curves, are there general spinal cues that will be useful for all regardless of their postural habits? Yeah. So this is great because it brings up this um, challenge with what do we reference as yoga teachers when we say, when we use verbal cues, what is the ideal that we're referencing? <laughs> and we could argue that there isn't one, you know, and we could just kind of drop out the, the need for an ideal set of postural cues. But I do think it's useful to work on posture, but it's hard to set up an external reference. So I always encourage people to reference themselves. So in a yoga class, that would mean if you're really interested in working on posture and investigating how the body's bones are stacked on each other, then we have to spend some time describing what we're going for. And then we have to teach the student to reference themselves. And that takes a little bit longer, but over time, you know, the students can learn to do that. So for example, in this specific question about sway back or flat back or, you know, these different pelvic positions, we could just start with the pelvis. And anytime we're dealing with the posture, I say go straight for the pelvis and start there uh, with a foundation of neutral. So we have to, and that's hard to see. You can't just look at your students and see where their pelvis is. Sometimes we can kind of get some information, but it's much easier if you teach the student how to feel where their pelvis is, and then they can find out. And they can feel how it moves back and forth and land in sort of a neutral-ish place that is the foundation for optimal spinal curves. And then on top of the pelvic position, we can stack the rib cage position. Those two things, the relationship between the pelvis and the rib cage, that's the foundation for spinal posture. So we just learn to explore those things, find out how are they related, how are they stacked on each other, and then teach our students to feel the actual bones, to kind of feel where they land in uh, the stacking alignment that is basically, we could say neutral, that promotes a more neutral sort of posture that we can build awareness around that ends up being very useful for a lot of people. So internal referencing versus external referencing. Yeah, and what I'm hearing you say also is to actually educate your students rather than guiding them through choreography. Because I think when we think about cueing, a lot of yoga teachers are trying to pull their students along a choreographed sequence with as much efficiency and guidance as possible, but there is this attachment to the sequence that they have created. Instead of being in relationship with those students and I know this is harder when you're teaching on Zoom, for example, but you can still watch people. You, you can still get some feedback of, is this landing? Are my cues landing? Where do they have good body awareness and where do they seem to be not really sensing or feeling or, or able to consciously move their bodies? So I think that's a, a great invitation to slow down and go deeper. 
Mm-hmm. And trust your students that they really are capable. If you're capable of learning it, they're capable of learning it. If you and I, Libby and Mado, are capable of learning it, then you who are a podcast listener are also capable and so are your students. Right. Yeah, exactly. So push pause on the choreography and just teach something and keep it, keep it simple. Keep it small. Right. If you're wanting to kind of work on posture as this student who asked this question was wanting to do, then just work on that and kind of maybe teach one principle. Maybe it's that neutral pelvis position. We're going to find it. And then in our sequence, we're going to keep finding it over and over and over in all these different postures and just explore it that way. Then the student gets to develop this felt sense of what you're talking about. And it doesn't just float off into the ethers as this verbal cue that really is meaningless to most of your students. And that's how a lot of our verbal cues end up landing. They just don't really land because we don't take the time to explain them. And oftentimes that's because we don't really understand them ourselves, you know, as yoga teachers, we just say them because they're habits. When you bring a simple cue in and then you weave it in throughout your entire sequence, then you're coming back to that idea of repetition again. And so you're, you're giving your student the opportunity to learn something more deeply. When we know something already, then we think we can just throw it out there and it will just land and our students will embody it. And that's just not the case. It's just like anatomy. When Libby shares something about anatomy that she knows really well, (laughs) then she has to pay attention. How is this landing? Are they absorbing it? Do I need to repeat it? Do I need to share it in a different way? Do I need to share it in a different context? Yeah, exactly. So... Next question is about dynamic holds versus static holds, which is better for strengthening muscles. The person goes on to say, I'm thinking of balancing tabletop, which often starts by extending and then flexing and then holding. What do you know about the different effects of dynamic versus static movement? Cool. I love this question because I love dynamic movement (laughs) and static has a place too, but I think so the the posture that she's talking about is in some of the practices that I've led, we will move into tabletop balance in a dynamic way. So we'll be, say, in child's pose and inhale into tabletop with one arm forward and the opposite leg back. And then we'll exhale back to child's pose and kind of go back and forth side to side. And that's usually how I work into tabletop balance. So I'll do it dynamically for a while and then we'll hold for a while. And the thing I love about dynamic movement, well, I'll back up and say, I think a combination of both ways of moving and doing postures is really awesome. They have different benefits, different effect on our system. Dynamic movement tends to have the effect of bringing warmth and blood flow to muscles. Um, Dynamic stretching is kind of magical for muscle tissue if you're doing a stretching kind of thing. When we're doing more of a strengthening thing like tabletop balance, we're building dynamic stability. So the ability to move in and out of that posture requires motor control, requires we be able to control our body's movement through space as we move. That's a really useful skill because that's sort of how we live life mostly is we're moving around in gravity and needing to control movement. So I love really slow dynamic movement because it trains motor control and helps train proprioception kind of feeling the sensation of the movement all the way through the range. It's magic, neuromuscularly sort of magic. And then when we stay, so in the tabletop balance, we're gonna hold for, I don't know, 
six or eight breaths or something, then we get to build endurance. We get to build a different kind of strength and um, static stability, boom, and deal with whatever irritation also may arise when we get tired in a pose, right? And that's useful too. So that's more of like an active pose, tabletop balance, strengthening, strong, active pose. When we're talking about more of a passive posture, like um, some sort of a forward, say you found a forward fold. Well, we could do dynamic, kind of go in and out of the posture, which again, gives us a little bit more strengthening and sort of uh, exploring the sense of stretch that may arise when we get to the fold, but we're not quite staying there yet. And then we come into it and stay passively. That becomes, and then we stay for a while, that becomes more of a um, stretch to passive structures in the body. So that's where we get into things like yin yoga postures where you hold passively for three to five minutes or maybe even longer, then the stretch starts to really influence the fascia versus just the muscle tissue. So whether we're talking about active or passive postures, there is a really important role to be played by dynamic and static. <laughs> nice. And how would teachers choose between the two or decide the ratio that they want to bring in? Yeah, I think it's purely, it's kind of a style question and a preference question. So my style is to lean more heavily towards dynamic movement because that's how I love to practice. It's what feels best in my body. I don't love static holds. Um, although I appreciate a static kind of active posture after I've moved in and out of it. I think moving in and out of a posture or moving dynamically first helps to cue the body into what's happening, help explore this posture before you ask it to stay. So I just like dynamic progressing to static, but they also have different elemental qualities. They have different energetic effects. So if you're wanting more of a watery experience, then you're going to want more dynamic movement. If you want more of an earth experience, you can be more static. And sometimes that's just personality, constitutional, kind of what are the effects energetically you want to bring to the practice, not just about how are we affecting muscle and fascia and bones and stuff, but what does the practice feel like when you do it? And that really um, is unique to each teacher. And it could be cool to play around with different versions of that to see um, how it feels for you as a teacher to practice in these different ways and then how your students seem to respond to it as well. Yeah. And I also love the dynamic to static because it works really well for our superactive brains. Mm -hmm. The dynamic movement gives our brains a lot of food. So there's a lot to think about and coordinate. And so it really captures our attention. And then once we are a little bit warmed up and we're more present, then we have, I think, a little bit more fortitude to mm -hmm. stay in the postures that are less comfortable. Yeah, I think so too. Exactly. It's a little hint. It's like, you're just hinting at your system what's coming, you know? Yeah. All right. Next question is about symmetry and asymmetry in sequencing. This person who asked the question says, I was taught that one should do both sides of an asymmetrical posture before a symmetrical posture, as otherwise there could be an imbalance in the hips, hamstrings, size of the spine, et cetera. For example, warrior two reverse warrior triangle sequence. If you just do them on the right side and then do prasarita the white-legged forward fold before doing the other side, one hip will be engaged in external rotation, one set of hamstrings lengthened, et cetera. And therefore this can make 
the prosarida or the wide-legged forward fold imbalanced in the hips, low back, and hamstrings, causing pelvic asymmetry and potential strain. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. Um, in general, I think it's okay to do one side and then come to symmetry and then do the other side and then come back to symmetry. Um, unless there's some, I mean, I think in this example, there would have to be some pretty extreme um, scenario for that to really be uncomfortable to come to symmetry in between sides. I just can't see that happening. What I can see happening that's really interesting is the interoceptive food that that presents to us. Because let's say I do those postures on one side, then I come to wide-legged forward fold. Whoa, I'm going to feel some really interesting differences between the right and the left side in that moment that I want to notice because that's me noticing the effect of the posture I just did or the series of postures that I just did. Like, wow, that really affected my right hamstring, feels different from my left, how cool. You know, and I'm often wanting to bring in these moments of noticing what was the effect of what we just did? You know, what's the effect when you did it on the right side? Because this is part of how we learn about ourselves through our practice is we notice how we feel after doing a thing. And so I think that's really useful. And I don't think that that would generally be problematic at all. Now, when we talk about symmetry versus asymmetry in a sequence, we can take symmetry to like any degree. And the most extremely symmetrical way of practicing is to do one side symmetry, do the other side symmetry like that. Or you could do a posture on each side and then a symmetrical pose. Or you could do a couple postures on each side and then a symmetrical pose, right? So in that little progression, we're getting a little less symmetrical overall, but that's all within the range of, um, I think, good symmetry. I wouldn't go more than two or three postures maybe without providing a symmetrical posture that's just my style. And often I'm dealing with people who need a therapeutic sort of effect of practice. So when we're dealing with, well, pretty much any body, normal bodies out there that probably have some aches and pains, more symmetry is generally better in terms of eliminating or elimin <laughs> eliminating, sorry, any ill effect from the practice because symmetry compensates for asymmetry. So, you know, what's really problematic is when we go a long time without symmetry. So that looks like 10 or 15 postures all done on one side, which by the way, is pretty common to find in a lot of vinyasa style classes. And then, you know, you turn around and do all those postures on the other side, and then maybe you do a symmetrical posture. You know, that's, that's wildly asymmetrical and often a recipe for the body just kind of feeling tweaky. But back to this other question though, this original question of how is it to do one side, then symmetry, then another side. Here's another example. Let's say you're doing a reclining twist, simple posture on your back, twist one way, and then you come back to center. I almost always, well, I would always stop right there and do a symmetrical posture, which looks like apanasana, hug your knees for a while. I might do some apanasana variations before I do the other side of my twist because I want to compensate for that twist before I go all the way over to the other side, usually. 
and that's fine. And in that case, that's usually going to be more comfortable than just going straight to the other side first. I do think there's a overzealousness about symmetry, but it's a different kind of symmetry than what I was just talking about. So the way I'm talking about symmetry is in sequencing so that we compensate for any possible ill effects that come out of our sequence, right? So we finish the class feeling good and not worse. So that is using symmetrical postures to compensate for asymmetrical postures. But there's this other notion of symmetry, which is that, you know, when you do something on one side of the body, you absolutely have to do it on the other side of the body or else you're going to walk out sideways and the world's going to collapse. And, um, and I have, you know, heard that in my yoga experience for many, many years. But actually, if we get to know our own body through our practice, through our asana practice, we will learn about our own asymmetries that exist in our bodies. And then we can actually tailor our practice to serve our asymmetries. So for example, in my body, I have scoliosis and my curve is a particular way. And so I have, um, I know that it's most optimal for me to practice some of the postures that I do, spend more time on one side, or maybe I just do them on one side one day or do them twice on that side, only once on the other side. So my asana practice might look a little asymmetrical because it is, I'm using it to deal with an asymmetrical body, right? To balance that out. However, even in that sequence that's serving an asymmetrical body, I'm still using symmetrical postures to compensate for asymmetrical postures. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 100%. And our lives are not symmetrical and we don't fall apart. We just had a snow storm here a couple of days ago. If you were to go out and you were to shovel snow, you would be putting a massive asymmetrical load on your body. There is no way that you can be even in the way that you're shoveling. You can't use your right side the same way you use your left side. We're just not that coordinated. Now, a few very dedicated, talented people might try, but you'd get tired really fast. If you have a load of snow to move, you're gonna use your stronger side. You're gonna you know, put a pretty big asymmetrical load on your body. And sometimes that does cause injury for sure. Um, but most of the time you're fine. And ideally you could go inside onto your yoga mat and find some ways to compensate and make your body feel better from yeah. that big asymmetrical load of your life. Yes, that's it. That's such a good point. So that then the whole asana practice gets to be a compensation for how you use your body in life so that you're limiting the ill effects that occur from your activities in your life. It's a perfect use of asana practice, among many others, of course, but that requires a certain level of willingness on the part of the practitioner to study her own body in her practice. And that requires an internal reference. We can't learn about this body when we are, when our minds are wrapped around some external reference of correctness and things like that. We kind of miss out on some of that internal information that arises when we just tune in and really try to notice our own felt experience of the practice and learn from that rather than being having an expectation, you know, from an external source about how we're supposed to feel in it. Anyway, so it, it all points back to this idea of really internally referencing your experience. Exactly. And it also points to as a teacher, you have this opportunity to share 
what you know, simple things that you understand about the human body to help your students build that reference of Mm -hmm. their own body. And so maybe if you have a a day or a week where there's a snowstorm and then you have a class, you could watch yourself as you're shoveling and notice the effects this has on your body. Go into your little laboratory of your yoga mat, figure out what makes it feel better, and then go and teach that to your students. Yeah. And so then the asana really just gets to be exploratory and free to just experience that's where I just hope we can all move to, honestly. It's just this ability to not be scared of asana, not be scared of movement, but just allow some freedom to explore how movement feels inside your body. Leading, you know, as teachers, leading our students, giving some permission to explore that. It can be so powerful. And you're right, keeping it simple is always best. A little nugget that's simple, but something that they're able to experience in their own bodies that then gets referenced again and again, along with space for them to experiment with it. Exactly. Yep. All right. Next question is about the cue, draw your shoulder blades down your back when having arms extended overhead, which is shoulder flexion, such as in downward facing dog. And the person asks, doesn't this interrupt the natural scapulohumeral rhythm. Why is this cue popular and is there any benefit to it? Oh, goodness. So the scapula is so misunderstood. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and what we tend to hear about the scapula and what we should do with it in yoga is usually pretty <clears throat> monolithic. You know, it's like just always squeeze your shoulder blades together and down. Always. It's sort of always the cue, it seems. <clears throat> or the most commonly thing, you know, cued thing. But so when we look at shoulder elevation or we could, you know, arms forward and up is shoulder flexion, arms out to the sides and up is shoulder abduction. In either case, when we take our arms overhead, the scapula rotate upward. It's just what they do. We don't have to think scapula rotate upward. You know, they just do. So can we can we pause for a moment to help listeners picture this? If you're standing behind somebody and you put your hands on their scapula and your fingertips are pointing up and your wrists are down more towards the bottom of their scapula, then the upward rotation would be the wrists moving out to the sides. That's right. And the fingers moving towards each other. That's right. Yep, exactly. And so you can see that the bottom part of the scapula, when you do that, moves away from each other. Yeah, and the top part is the part that upper trapezius is kind of pulling on, pulling it kind of up and in towards the midline. But this bottom part moving out is a combination of that protraction and the rotation. And the lower trapezius has to anchor it so that it (laughs) rotates. So there's just like a combination of three muscle actions that combine to do that rotation. It's called the salute, (laughs) salute, but it's serratus anterior, lower and upper trapezius they do rotation. So that's complicated and you're not gonna cue that. You're not gonna cue all that in yoga. You just let it happen, right? So like in downward facing dog, I say, just don't say anything about the scapula necessarily. You don't need to. If the arms are overhead and you know, I would focus more on the comfort factor of externally rotating the humerus in the shoulder joint to create more space 
underneath the acromion process, usually anytime we're in shoulder flexion or full abduction and we externally rotate the shoulder, we get more spaciousness and less risk for pinching. Now that all requires the scapula to be able to move. So for example, if we are using cues that actually inhibit scapular upward rotation, then we are setting up our students for more shoulder impingement under the acromion process. We, because that scapulohumeral rhythm, that just refers to when we take our arm overhead, part of that movement happens at the shoulder joint, glenohumeral joint, part of that movement happens at the scapulothoracic joint, and they work together as a unit. So if our cues are inhibiting part of that rhythm, yeah, we may have problems. Okay, and so in the case of downward dog, if we're saying squeeze your shoulder blades down and back, well, yeah, that may inhibit some rotation. What I would say instead, well, I already said, just leave it out maybe, but if you're gonna say something, I would say allow, allow the scapula to broaden away from each other, let's say, because that's kind of, that's the feeling of upward rotation is more of a broadening away from each other. And for some reason in yoga, we have, come to a, I don't know, a real like phobia of scapular protraction, you know, like we just want them stuck together all the time and we are somehow afraid to let them just spread out. But that's really important movement for the scapula to be able to do. And if we're always cueing, squeeze them together all the time, then we're probably inhibiting that natural ability. Also, we're going to end up with short tissues between the shoulder blades so that we don't have the range of motion <clears throat> to even accommodate that movement over time. So I like your suggestion to use the cue to allow, mm -hmm. because especially if you are teaching students who have taken a lot of yoga classes, they may have that squeeze them together and mm -hmm. squeeze them together and down sort of ingrained into their movement patterns. They, they may not even be realizing that they're doing it because they have gotten so convinced that that's what good alignment is. So that cue to allow, I mean, it might not be enough. You might have to actually stop and say, Hey, watch me here. Mm -hmm. Guess what? This is what my shoulders do. It's okay. Let it happen. But at the very least to actually name that permission could be helpful for people who to, who have the pattern of squeezing them together all the time. Yeah. What I'd also love to hear from you is, do you have a sense of why this cue or this idea of shoulder blades together and down, where did that come from? And what was the original intention behind it? <laughs> Well, honestly, in yoga land, I think the original intention of most of our alignment cues originated in a notion of discipline more than anything. It wasn't about biomechanics in the beginning. This is, you know, a lot of our cues, I think, are really our old relics of this resurgence of asana practice in modern yoga that was largely for little boys in India, and it was the disciplinary sort of setting. So it was about, it was about that. And the cue to squeeze shoulder blades down and back, I think, is a, was a postural cue about sort of standing in a militaristic way, this military posture of like lifting your chest and throwing your shoulders back, you know? And so then we have this notion that we're supposed to replicate Tadasana in every posture. <laughs> so I think that may be how it has emerged. But the thing is, when our arms are overhead, 
shoulders do something different, scapula is doing something different. And regardless, I don't even think that's an appropriate cue in Tadasana. Right. But, but it's a cue that produces this more um, disciplinary, like military stance. And that was what, you know, the early asana practice was kind of known for in some ways. Wow. That just blew my mind, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, I'm, I guess, you know, it, I can't think of any anatomical reason that that cue came about. That's the thing. And even when we look at Tadasana and we're trying to figure out a way to use words to cue a more upright posture, a more kind of like Udana, Prana, like upward moving postural movement. That's not what I would say. Because sometimes what we see when we look at our students, we see this kind of rounding and the shoulders are forward. And so we think we can fix it by cueing to pull your shoulder blades back together. And the problem with that is that we haven't fully understood what we're seeing. And when we want to adjust shoulder position in standing posture, we have to go and start at the spine because the spine's shape dictates the rib cage's shape, dictates the scapular position, dictates the shoulder position, right? Like rib cage follows spine, scapula follows ribs, shoulder follows scapula. So we have to dig all the way down to the spine and address that. And then the shoulders fall into place, usually, right? And if they don't, then we can cue something about shoulders, but generally they fall into place, which is actually a little forward. Yeah. They're not supposed to be behind you supposed to be a little forward. That's a natural position for the shoulders to be in because it allows us to use our arms in front of us, which is where we use them as humans. This is where we do our work is out in front. So they're about 30 degrees anterior. It seems like it's kind of a combination between that notion of discipline and the ability to follow instructions carefully and a sense of aesthetics and kind of an overly simplistic solution to an aesthetic position of the body that people have demonized. Yep. I think so. I think it's all that. And it's useful to dig underneath it to understand the anatomy of what's going on. It's super useful. I mean, we've just in these few minutes explored notions about how do we build posture and how does the scapula move when we move our arms up overhead? Those are interesting things to learn about. And once we do, we're going to use different words to describe them when we teach yoga. Yeah, this is why I think learning anatomy is so fascinating, fun, and essential if you're going to be teaching any kind of movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I really do. And it's not even because, you know, you want necessarily your class to become an anatomy lesson, but if you are asking people to move their bodies around, it's so helpful to use words that are not misleading because people are learning about their body through your class. Yeah. And especially if you want to cue people, you know, if you want to teach a class, a yoga class, that's really includes movement, but is very free form and lets people kind of figure out their own way of movement. That's fine. That's, that's a, you know, you can focus on energetics. You can focus on breath. You can focus on, on meditation. There's lots of angles of yoga to focus on that doesn't require knowing about anatomy, but if you want to cue people, if you want to help people do their postures in a certain way. If you want to have an agenda for maybe, maybe you don't even have an agenda because that's kind of where we're leading. That's kind of where this study leads is like, maybe don't have an agenda, (laughs) teach, share, uh, hold space and let people end up with their own agenda. But I do think that there is this 
this natural tendency that's happened of people taking a teacher training, they get taught a certain way, but it's not complete. They learn these cues, but not the context. They go out into their classes. They're seen as the expert by their students, and then they want to embody that. And so they keep teaching these cues they learned in teacher training without really understanding them. And so if you want to be that kind of teacher, if you want to use anatomical cues, you want to talk to people about their bodies, you want to guide them and not necessarily micromanage, but some in some context, it might seem like micromanage the way that they're moving their body. You really need to understand the anatomy behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I agree that it's perfectly lovely to not cue anatomy at all in your class that you don't have to. In fact, the body generally, um, just moves, you know, the human body moves and it, it, we can really use anatomical cues and wonderful in illuminating ways in our class. But we also very often, I think, need to just step back and remember that human body kind of knows generally how to move and we can use more general cues really more effectively and keep it really simple. But if we're going to talk about the body, we need to learn how to talk about the body. Yeah. Otherwise, we are generally... Um, misleading perhaps with our unexamined cues and you're you named it that when new teachers come out of teacher training having kind of scratched the surface of maybe a little anatomy and they've learned all these cues but maybe not really fully understood the context of them and but they the students see them as expert and that's a hard situation to be in. It's a really uncomfortable position to be in. So it's always okay to say you don't know or you go find out, but students generally are gonna ask their students or students are gonna ask their teachers questions about their body too. That's the thing. If you're doing asana, even if you don't cue anatomy all that much after class, your students can have a question about their shoulder or whatever, right? Or in downward dog, I heard I'm supposed to do this with my shoulder blade. What do you think? Absolutely. And, you know, the good thing is that learning about anatomy is super fascinating. It's super fun. And wherever, you know, wherever you turn, find a mentor, find a teacher, and just commit to a little bit over a long period of time. Yeah, I totally agree. A little bit frequently over a long time is the way to do it. You have to sort of stay immersed in it. Stay immersed in it. Otherwise, it's like it's just gone into the further... (laughs) reaches <laughs> you got me a donut what what well it was actually for me but i ate half of it you ate half of it and it was just too much okay i'm gonna finish up recording this with libby and then i'll be upstairs in two minutes okay okay all right bye well that's definitely staying in the episode donut This was super fun and fascinating. I'm sure we'll do it again. Do you have any final words for listeners before we wrap up? Um, I was just thinking, you know, the other cool thing that's happening in Anatomy Bites is this this community of learners that get to learn with each other and from each other. And that's just really been cool to watch. And I've sort of been surprised a little bit about that part of it. And I can see just how useful and how encouraging that has been for some of the the participants and the members in the Anatomy Bites to have that. So I would just throw in if you can find a way, you know, such as Anatomy Bites, but to, to be with a group of people who are learning alongside you, it makes such a big difference. Yeah, I agree.
Well, thank you so much, Libby, for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your perspective. I don't, we, I don't think we did any bad anatomy puns today, but <laughs> we'll come up with some for next time. For sure. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I really love chatting with Libby about yoga because she and I are on the same wavelength about so many things, but she's also so smart and I learned so much from her. So I hope you also enjoyed getting to be a fly on the wall and overhearing our conversation. As I reflect on what we talked about today, the big takeaway for me is how learning anatomy can lead towards liberation in the sense of inviting us to let go of dogmatic approaches to practicing and teaching asana. Letting go of there being a right or wrong way to move also leads to the understanding that there's no right or wrong way for a body to look, that all bodies are good bodies, that we each have a personal journey where yoga in general, but asana specifically, can be used as a tool to heal or a tool to harm, and we get to choose between the two on a moment-by-moment basis. I do think that the desire to be an expert quickly that Libby mentioned during our conversation is part of what leads to yoga sometimes being harmful because it causes us to be attracted to a simplistic and binary way of thinking. We want to know what's right and what's wrong. Then we can put that knowledge in our pocket and pull it out to maybe impress people or help people, whatever it is our actual motivation is. A lot of times binary thinking leads to assumptions that bypass the truth and cause harm. And I don't want to act like I am above this tendency. The reason I can name it is because I've experienced it. This is where the path leads right back to yoga because diving into the complexity of anatomy and relaxing into not knowing leads us right back to the type of inquiry that I believe is one of the core goals or purposes of yoga. So if you want to feel more confident when your students ask you about their bodies before and after class, I hope that you will take on the project and dive into learning anatomy a little bit at a time over a long period of time, just like your abhyasa, your practice. And if you're considering Anatomy Bites as the format or the container for your learning, make sure that you get on the wait list at anatomybites.com. That's all I've got for you today, yoga teacher. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for caring enough to study anatomy, study this incredibly complex and beautiful human form, and for sharing the insights that you gain through that study with your students.